Hi friends and welcome to episode 002, the most important episode because it means we did another one of Mastication Nation, the podcast that brings you everything that is wonderful about food without serving it on a plank of reclaimed Japanese driftwood. Will, how are you? I'm great. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. The sun is shining in England. Yeah. That must mean it's the it's the it's the end of the world. <laughs> uh, it's 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 uh, sunny here in Berkeley, but that's kind of standard. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't get to brag about it being sunny in California, although it's a little chilly. So, here we it's are, episode chilly. two, episode one went down pretty well. You guys listened to it, and you seem to like it. So thank you for the love and listening, and the retweets, and the comments, and the downloads. I, I don't know, but yeah, I, I I was delighted with the reception. Yeah, I, I think that we definitely sort of put it out there, um, not knowing what was going to happen. And uh, I think the combination of complete unknowns, as well as friends and family, you know, got to grow, start it somewhere, it was all very positive. So thank you for everybody that listened, that downloaded it, that uh, had nice things to say. Um, and, you know, we'd love to hear from you. So anytime you want to reach out to us individually or on our on our Mastication Nation or Mastication.ntn Twitter for future ideas, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. And if you like the show, like the first episode, please take 10 seconds to write us an iTunes review or or anything like that. It, it helps broaden the audience. And thank you to those of you who cannot stand avocados, but chose to endorse us anyway. I think yeah. there's going to be quite a few of the episodes in this podcast that are divisive in nature, either in the things that we say or the topics that we cover. But uh, food is like that. And I think that's a, that is what makes food great. But the question of the day, what are you drinking? Uh, this is kind of disappointing. I am um, just drinking water. I'm, I had a couple beers uh, last night, and so I'm, I'm trying to rehydrate this morning. So oh, I think it, it, water is good. I drink two liters of sparkling water every day. It's also, uh, I think, important for those of you that are new to this podcast to reiterate that I am in England. So the fact that I am drinking a glass of 2015 Chateau Le Grand Moulin Collection Reserve Bordeaux it does not make me an alcoholic because it's eight o'clock in the evening here. If Will was doing that at, at noon in California, eh, it's, it's nothing. Ca- it's in California. I live in wine country. I'm allowed it's to do a, that. Yeah, that's okay. Actually, that's okay. But no, this is. I'm actually digging this wine. It's uh, it's a Carrefour special, but you know that's that's not a bad thing. I'm digging it. Uh, and so you, I like this idea. You had this idea for another question of of, of the day or question of the podcast. Uh, so hit, shoot, hit it, hit me with it. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to do something a little bit more reflective. And so, what was the best thing you ate this week? Mm, so, so this this week is actually going to be pretty easy. But I think going forward, this is going to be really, really difficult. My sons and I, I have a six year old and a four year old, and for the last three weekends in a row, we've been making pizza. Uh, and we've been getting kind of more and more scientific each week with how we do the dough. And we've been looking at uh, some of the best recipes out there and just seeing, if, seeing what works. And we made three doughs this uh, yesterday, actually, and they've been proving over overnight. And they were flipping awesome. We ate them about two hours ago, and they were just top drawer. We did a combination of, of Alton Brown's dough recipe and uh, Kenji Lopez out from uh, Serious Eats, his perfect pan pizza dough recipe. And they were great. And I think that was honestly the best thing I ate this week. Nice. Um, the best thing I ate last week. So a uh, quick story. When I was working in the dog patch area of San Francisco, um, there was a fantastic cheese shop that opened up in our building. Uh, and they were doing these incredible cheeses from all around the world, mainly from uh, France. Yes, I've been to this cheese place. Yes. And they are fantastic. The the, the waits, the, not the waits, the service there, and they're incredibly knowledgeable. And about a year into their existence, they were like, maybe we should start doing some sandwiches with their cheeses. And so they did a bunch. They're all inspired by French places like La Parisienne and La Toulouse or whatever they may be. And basically, it became my go-to for lunch every single day. Now, fast forward (laughs) about three years, I'm walking around downtown San Francisco, and I find that they've expanded and actually built a uh, a new restaurant or a new location in downtown San Francisco. So when I'm walking around, I'm just like, oh, oh, crap, it's here. So jump in. And so the best thing I had is my my always go-to sandwich when I'm there. And it is called uh, La Toulouse, and it is a smoked duck, uh, sheep's milk, sorry, so it's smoked duck, sheep's milk cheese, fig jam, dried figs, wild arugula, 
and extra Lord. extra virgin olive oil on uh, ciabatta. And it's simple. I know it sounds like there's a lot going on there, but it's all very simple ingredients, nothing too fancy, no real preparation. But it is phenomenal. And you can buy the whole smoked duck breast, um, you know, not sliced. And one of the best things I've ever done with it, I've taken it home and made carbonara with the, the smoked duck breast rather than bacon. It is incredible. <laughs> Yeah, some of the best sandwiches I've ever had have come from San Francisco. When we shot the San Francisco episode of Attaché, Kenji was kind enough to introduce us to Pal's Takeaway, which actually has moved across the bay to Oakland. But that was just some of the most creative sandwich making. And it wasn't just creative to be creative. It was just, it was good and clever and fresh and delicious of course so i'm not surprised you had an incredible sandwich and that you have to take me there when i'm out in july absolutely we'll do um, and, and it stays and it stays affordable even though it's right in the heart of of soma so well there you go folks if you're in san francisco what's it called La Fremondry. All right, there you go. You have to hit it up. Uh, i think that uh, there's another one final anecdote that needs to be shared because frankly this is bullshit. our mother who lives in london is visiting will in california and went out to lunch, uh, and she said, I'm going out to lunch with some friends uh, at a place, uh, I can't remember what it's called, some French, something French. And uh, it sounds pretty good. It was Chez Flipping Penny. Our mother went to Chez Penny and had no I- idea how amazing that is. I don't know if she enjoyed it. I haven't spoken to her since she found out she was going, but she, have you been to shape? You've been to shape. Yeah. I went to shape and my birthday about five years ago. And yes, I, but this was a casual lunch that she was just going to. And I, she had no concept. She was not in charge of where that was going. And I kind of flipped out a little bit when I found out, but, uh, she enjoyed the experience. She said, you know, she didn't understand the, the gravity of where she was, but you know, she said the food was, was good. A little, little pricey, but good. Shape and for those who don't know, know is alice waters is uh not flagship restaurant but this is her only restaurant here in berkeley uh and throughout the 90s and 2000s was consistently voted one of the most important restaurants in the world uh, alice water waters if you love her or hate her and i have a very contentious relationship with her yeah she doesn't know about it but um you know is that <laughs> is that a directional uh, relationship exactly is that um you know she's basically created the slow food movement that is now so dominant across most of the most of the world um the farm to table movement can be traced back to her restaurant um, well, that's her- very cool that 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 our mother was able to go there. Our mother's not exactly a foodie, but um, yeah, still a cool experience. Uh, and so you're very lucky to have that on your doorstep. So we started this podcast uh, as we're doing this in alphabetical order with ah. Uh, it seemed like the logical place to start. And we picked avocados. And now I thought avocado toast was probably the most controversial component of it, even though I'm still not entirely sure why that's so so controversial. But it turns out a lot of people don't like avocados. My friend uh, Noel replied with my, to my request to, to retweet this. Avocado literally makes me violently sick. Nope. Our, our friend Paul, who I do layovers podcast with, I period don't period eat period avocado period ever. But I listen to podcasts and this one is super, super cool. <laughs> Subscribe everyone. So thank you, Paul, for for that endorsement. But again, this was, this was surprisingly contentious. So I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that this topic that we picked for the letter B is going to be a thousand times more controversial and uh, more divisive, and we will get more angry tweets than any topic. I also think that it's going to be so broad that we may come back to it when we do B again, or it may come up as a as a subtopic in future episodes. Uh, so, will B is for burgers. Burgers. All right. You have to think. And about it's starting off with a okay. beh- I mean, number two, the second episode, we're going for the behemoth. Going big. Uh, yeah. Yeah. This is not a small topic. Burgers are broad. And I think uh but you know, we I think we've got a lot to talk about here, but I also think that um when you when you peel back the layers, the definition of a burger is actually not as broad as people think. There's some pretty important components that that build up to what makes officially a burger. But before we get ahead of ourselves, uh, the origin of the burger itself is actually pretty 
gray area. It's quite nebulous, isn't it? So I think the fact that we said that this is going to be a controversial episode uh, starts from the inception of the entire dish. Um, nobody has a definitive answer, and, and the, the mountains of research that I did on this, everyone says that they are the original, and, and it's it, even. The fact that um, you know the the food item existed in one form and for like like fifty odd years, and then people are saying, "Nope, no, ignore that. That's not the original." So let's just sort of start at the beginning. The word hamburger, and then I, in my research, I was thinking about this because hamburger, hot dogs, you know, uh, Vienna, you know, Vienna, like so much of what yeah. is classic Americana is rooted back in Germany. So hamburger, yeah, but so much, so much of American food is because we. Yeah, America is a nation built on immigration, and then as a result, it has this food collage that's built on on the on the backs of uh, of so many different cultures. Which but is I mean, a we had a thing. huge Irish population. We have a huge uh, uh, migration, and we had a huge Italian. We don't have things called Dubliner for food, or we don't have like that's, a Romaner. Uh, that's true. So you know, the, the the what I came up with. And let's basically, I'm going to preface this and say no one has the the official answer on this. But the concept of the hamburger comes from a beef steak, a hamburger steak, which was so a steak from Hamburg. Well, or, no, it or was steak meat. in the style of Hamburg. Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and the concept was that there was um, Hamburg style oh, Hamburg beef, and that's where it came across to to the U.S. You know that the German immigrants knew Hamburg steak, the new Hamburg beef. However, in Germany at around the 1700s, there were, were people chopping up beef and, you know, having it in the hamburger steak style. And if you don't know what a hamburger steak is, just imagine the patty served without all the accoutrement by itself. Like a patty milk. Without the without the bread. So no bread, just the... Oh, right. Yes, which is a very common dish in, and still in Western Europe. Exactly. And that's sort of like the origins of the first and most important ingredient of a hamburger, the patty. You can still like get a hamburger steak. The first time I sort of see it coming up in history as as not just one guy saying I invented it was um, the Hamburg American line, which was a, a ship cruise line who were putting a hamburger steak or hamburger steak between two pieces of bread and they named it after mm-hmm. themselves. Uh, and that's the first time that bread basically gets involved in this whole situation. But no one really acknowledges the fact that, the, you know, there was also another guy who was selling meatballs and then squished them into bread, which is basically, you know, a patty and a hamburger. Yeah. And that guy but gets- here, that's it. I think that's what's interesting is that that when the burger, the patty itself, came across the Atlantic, that's where the evolution started and people started putting it between bread. Because you can, again, you can still go back to France and get a steak haché, which is essentially a, a patty of ground beef. Exactly. Cooked, and you can, you can get it, the hamburger steak in, in Germany and, and throughout. But when it came over, and then, of course, once the hamburger was created, you know, generically in the U.S., it then took, what, 150 years to go back to Western Europe? So it's it's this beautifully kind of cyclical <laughs> exactly. Food so most factory. most food scholars recognize the what we recognize as the traditional hamburger, the modern hamburger, as coming from the U.S. and it was German or Austrian or that region um, of immigrants, um, you know, in the U.S. mainly in New England or or the tri-state area uh, in, in, on the East Coast as being the original. Um, and so, Congresswoman Rosa Delora said that the hamburger, a ground meat patty. Between two slices of bread. I love that a congresswoman felt that she needed to. Oh yeah, that she needed. Needed. I actually was looking for the if there was a government definition on what this what a burger is because it does get contentious and we'll get into that. Uh, was it created in America in 1900 by Lewis Larson, a Danish immigrant owner of Louis Lunch in New Haven, Connecticut? And I've driven past this place, and they do have a big sign saying it is the original home of the burger. I I don't think that anybody can can legitimately dispute the fact that the hamburger is an American creation. Okay, so I'm going to... I don't gonna, think anybody would want to lay claim to that. So, yeah, and it has become our our, our cliche, our stereotype, our um, national dish. But I'm going to throw a contentious argument out here, um, and I've said that word too many times already, that the British invented the hamburger. Nonsense. And Absolute I'll, I'll tell you what. Okay, so... Um, I was trying to explain, is a hamburger a sandwich? And I think, yes, it is, but it's also on menus. It's its own separate, you know, page usually. 
and I was joking around uh, talking to a friend. I said, a hamburger is to a sandwich as Paul McCartney is to the Beatles. He is <sighs> part of, but separate and de- definitively his own you know, incarnation. So if we do acknowledge the fact that it is a sandwich, we know, and this is one of those old wives' tales that actually probably was true. The sandwich was invented by an Englishman, by a... Um, by a member of nobility, John Montague, the fourth Earl of Sandwich, would invented it. He was a notorious gambler. And he, oh, that's spurious. Uh, see, see, this is what I'm saying is that if he invented the sandwich, therefore, logically, the, the invention of putting meat between bread, which ended in what we know as a hamburger, the original concept comes from the English. They were the first ones to put meat that's between. That's like saying the dude that invented the wheel can claim to have invented the car. I think that's a little bit more tenuous because what, but, but what you're doing is you're reinforcing my, my idea that a burger is not a sandwich, which I truly believe they are two separate line items. I agree too. I don't think a burger is a sandwich. But you'll find them. I mean, then what is it? it is- sandwich. No. Okay. No. Okay. No. All right. All right. No. So, no. As I said, like the fact is, the 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 history is incredibly uh, gray here. The ownership, the claiming of who invented it first is uh, even even murkier. Uh, but for the sake of argument, and I think no one would really challenge us on this, um, is that the hamburger is as American as apple pie, and this is its uh, spiritual home. Or the fact that it it achieved nirvana in America. That's what we'll say. But moving on, uh, well, actually not moving on because it does, it goes back to the point you're making earlier that it is, it is a very, very blurry definition, not just of, of origin, of backstory, of kind of cultural ownership, but also of, of definition. And I think, I think that's good. I think that that's okay. I, I, I worry a little bit when people get overly anal about what is a quote unquote proper food. I, I hate the word proper as it is, but I just, I think that, you know, if, uh, if a burger is prepared in a certain way and then there are things added to it, it's fine. But I think that we can all agree that there are certain things that make something a burger versus a, a hot sandwich or a patty melt or just a steaming pile of crap. <laughs> I, yeah. Go ahead. I agree. I, I will. I will follow you down that rabbit hole. Yeah, and I, th- you know, th- there's been a lot of, um, there's been a lot of experimentation. There's been a huge amount of debate. There's a, certainly a lot of opinion. A lot of ac- a weird amount of academia actually uh, that have gone in, into this uh, of what makes a, a burger, what should be in a burger, what shouldn't be in a a, a burger. Uh, even you know, people like Anthony Bourdain, who surprisingly is a bit of a burger fiend. Anthony Bourdain is has never shied away from voicing his opinions on on food cliches on foods in general. He hates McDonald's. That's where he and I just differ on opinion there, and I'll get to that in a minute. But he is a huge fan of In and Out. That's one of his favorite foods on the planet, uh, and he's a huge fan of Shake Shack. So I think by definition of Shake Shack, by definition, I think you can say the dude is a burger fiend, and he actually has this list of things that one must do to ensure the uh, enjoyment of a burger, whether or not you are preparing it yourself or consuming it. And everybody has one of these lists. And I think that we should pull some of them apart and see if we think that they're true or not. So we'll start with Bourdain's and we'll go over a few more people's, including Nathan Mirvold, which is just mind-breaking, but it's fascinating, the science behind it. Okay, so Anthony Bourdain says a burger should be simple. And his, his point there is, before you add anything to a burger, you must ask yourself, am I making this dish better. So you should not add arugula or fennel and beetroot, although beetroot is a big thing in Australia, um, that you should use. And this is, I mean, we may be getting ahead of ourselves with the components of a proper thing, but the bun and the patty, I think, are just about the only thing that the vast majority of these people, including me, agree on. That a burger must have a bun. <laughs> And it must have a patty. Uh, and that's about it. Then everybody else deviates from there. So I think that we should start with those two components. I agree. And you can add, you can remove, you can add crazy over-the-top ingredients beyond those two things. But if you can't get the bun and the patty right, then it then you you are starting from uh, you know, a bad position. Uh, and or I think if you don't have a patty or a bun, you don't have a burger. I think yeah, and there's all these there's all these uh 
exceptions to the rules. I mean, you know, you know that if you go to In and Out Nashville or for almost any American restaurant, uh, fast food restaurant in Nashville, like low carb, they're going to wrap your quote unquote burger in a lettuce leaf without any bun in it. And that becomes a lettuce wrap. That's not a burger in my mind. You know, so there are things that are, are burger esque, burger like, but they're not burgers without having, you know, bread and, and a patty. I think that with the rise, and I, this happens to be happening more in London and in, in Europe, and I, I think in Australia as well, there are these rises of um, gourmet burger places, places that are, are sort of jumping on the trend of like, hey, let's take something super simple and charge a lot more for it by, by using quote unquote higher end products. But there's a reason why the best burgers are in places that are not high food, high quality, not high quality, like, you know, um, overly serious food places. They are easy. They are good. They are don't take themselves too seriously. And the thing that bugs me the most, and it happens in a lot of places in the U.S. as well as Europe, is when they don't consider the construction of the sandwich. You got to understand that this is basically an engineering project. You have soft meat or and or other vegetables, um, you know, lettuce, tomato, whatever, onions in your burger that is surrounded by bread. So the last thing you're going to do is want to have a a bread or a bun that is so tough. Uh, and, and, and doesn't yield that you have to bite really hard through it. And then half your ingredients go squirting across the table. And so I go to places where they have ciabatta or vacaccia or any of these other hearty, but really flavorful breads in their sandwiches. And it's just like, no, you're not even thinking about this from square one in the right direction. You are trying to be too fancy for your own good. And you're going to make me not like this burger. Yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And I, I think uh, focaccia, what else? no, 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 no. I think the trend that I've seen in, in burger places that ordinarily I, I, I dig and I think they get everything else right is the brioche bun. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that the brioche bun is a huge mistake in a burger that's constructed well because it just falls apart. It's not gonna. It doesn't have the endurance to last the marathon of drippy, burgery wetness that a good burger should should end up with, and they end up falling apart. Yes, they look pretty. They've got that the the, the glaze and everything, and they they've got a little bit of a sweet thing going on. But I just don't. I don't. I'm not a fan. I just think it's like it, the whole thing just falls apart, and it doesn't really work well. No, I agree. I agree. And anything that sort of the it should be, I think Bourdain mentions this, any burger should be able to be eaten with one hand. I mean, yes, you can go massive, um, and that's your own prerogative. However, a good burger should be able to be eaten with one hand, and you can be able to you know, not worry about it falling apart, not worrying about you know the insides falling out. So the bread is so key to making sure that it can soak up whatever is inside without disintegrating or being so hearty that you're not going to be able to get through it. Yeah, just you spend your whole life chewing. So if it's not focaccia, it's not brioche, not ciabatta, then what is it? What it makes a good burger bun? I think just the traditional sesame seed soft bread uh, bun that you get a dime a dozen any anywhere in any normal supermarket is fantastic. However, I know that you and Bourdain and a couple other people have a very specific bun in mind that you think is the ultimate, uh, uh, you know, bun uh, bun type as well. Potato. Which is weird because most, like, I remember moving to America and not, never really understanding what a potato bun was. And you're thinking, what is that, like, like two baked potatoes between, you know, the meat? But, uh, <laughs> which sounds awesome, but uh, I didn't, I couldn't get my head around it. I was like, are there chunks in there? Or what is it? And then I had Hawaiian... Hawaiian Mills potato bread, and I'm just like, this is this is unreal. This is amazing. It's amazing for everything from sandwiches to soups to like it's. I love it in um, like slow pulled pork, and when you have all that juice, it soaks up everything and holds its structure so well. Yeah, it does. It does exactly what it's supposed to do. It holds up its structure. It's but it's still soft. It's perfect. And it you may not have seen it or heard of it, but I guarantee you that you've had a potato or potato starch bun on your burger. It's the one that 
is so innocuous and inconsequential that you ignore it, but it's there to the last bite. That is, the, to me, the sign of the perfect burger. You ignore it because it's doing its job. Because if it gets in the way of the flavor of the burger, then I think you are, uh, you've picked the wrong bread, frankly. Now, that's what Bourdain says. That's what Kenji Lopez out from uh, from Serious Eats says. That's generally the consensus of opinion. What I want to do as we go through each of these is is refer to Nathan Mirvold's book. And Nathan Mirvold wrote this $650 book called Modernist Cuisine. Have you read it? Have you seen it? No, and actually I don't really know too much about him. Okay, so Nathan Mirvold was the chief technology officer at Microsoft for years. I mean, in the, in the heydays of Microsoft. And he is also a budding chef. He has uh, his culinary diploma, not even a budding chef. He's an excellent chef. He's a Cordon Bleu chef. Uh, he got his, he went to, to cooking school in France and he did uh, an unpaid apprentice at, at Rovers in Seattle, one of the best West uh, Coast restaurants uh, with Tierra Retro. And he is just a, a, he loves the science of food as well. So he wrote this book in 2011. It's 2,500 pages long, cost 650 books, 650 bucks. And it's, it's, uh, it's just the science of it. And he's, he's, he had all these, this incredible, equipment available to him like rotostatter homogenizers a 50,000 g4 centrifuge ultrasonic baths electrical discharge machines i mean he went like pure science on this and one of the recipes that became the most famous out of this book was his burger recipe and it's pretty incredible what he he reckons that you should do and it's it's basically the science of each component and so i want to to mirror the conversation we have in the real world with what with what he said so for the bun he says potato starch hamburger bun is fine you make it from scratch but then you toast it and beef suet okay and i am a strong believer in a toasted bun i think it helps with uh uh, sauce management. I think it helps. Sauce with. management. <laughs> you sound like a manager at McDonald's. Uh, exactly. You're not doing a great job of your sauce management. Well, yeah, get it together. Uh, I also think that if you don't put a sauce on that, it helps with building up friction between um, the the rest of the sandwich and therefore. I think you and Nathan Merrill will be buddies because you you both uh, you both talk science. Here. I've, I've not um, read this article, so if I'm quoting anything from there, it's purely because you're not you're not. But <laughs> you're both basically talking about the same things in the same terms. So the bun, okay, I think we've established potato bun, potato roll. They're available everywhere. Have a look at the, if, if it doesn't overtly say potato bun, you'll know. Just look at the ingredients and look for potato flour, potato starch, anything like that. So the next thing, before we get into the accoutrement of a burger, is the patty in the loosest sense of the word. And again, this is where it becomes contentious. And I think this is the thing that, that immediately separates the, the good from the bad. You can immediately taste a burger that's been cooked from frozen. You can immediately taste a burger that has been badly made or, or the cuts of meat aren't right. But it's essentially ground beef. But it's not, I wish it was as simple as that, but it's really not. I think people think of ground beef as the cheap cuts and the buttholes and the earlobes and things. But And that may be fine to feed your kids, but it's not okay for your burger. You have to look at the quality of what you're putting into a burger the way you would look at a piece of steak or a piece of brisket or a piece of tri-tip or whatever else it is. You have to have the same level of of quality control in a burger patty as you would with any other piece of beef. Do you think that's fair? Yeah. And I mean, even more so from the science part of it, um, Let's put it this way. In England, you go to the store and it says minced meat on it. And that just drives me nuts. You know, we actually we're getting better at that because you can get fat grated meat, ground beef. Now right. So well. the government requires um, in this country, if, based on the, the level of fat that's left, usually get 80, 20, but you can get 85, 15, um, you know, meat to fat. And it also has, to, also has to note whether or not fat has been added to create that percentage, which is not a bad thing at all. But it brings me to the point of what you're grinding. Beef is not beef is not beef uh, from the quality, but also the cut. Um, if you grind a tenderloin, 
a piece of meat that has done absolutely nothing in its entire life. Uh, it is a muscle that has done, you know, does, does no physical work on the beast. It is going to be incredibly tender to cook and to sear, but has no fat in it and therefore is terrible, crumbly, and kind of gross when you try and grind it. However, if you want something that is ultra fatty, ultra tough, you're going to be on the other side of that. So generally what you find is there are some key terms that you find in ground meat and it's, um, you know, chuck, it's sirloin, it's top sirloin, but a lot of good guys, they will mix and match to find the right balance of flavor, uh, lean and, and, and fat to do whatever it is. And ground meat that you're going to be using for a burger is not the same ground meat that you're going to be using for meatballs or, um, or a, a meatloaf. And let's go back to that fat point for a second, because that immediately debunks the whole nonsense of Kobe beef burgers, which are pointless, uh, Pointless, right? Because the fat I mean, the, the, the beautiful thing, and I've, I've had Wagyu beef in Japan, I've had a Shigaki beef, and it's that beautiful fat, that marbling. But if you grind it and then you put it on a griddle, that fat's going to melt away <laughs> immediately. And that's what you're paying for. And all the, the textural note, which is why you're paying an obscene amount of money for this beef created by that fat and that marbling is now over the coals <laughs> you know it's a it's yeah. a complete waste of time so yeah it, kobe it, beef burgers are are silly kobe beef is wonderful kobe beef burgers are silly it, yeah and it doesn't make any financial sense for a for a bar that does them as kobe beef sliders either because they're just seeing all their profits run down i mean all the expensive part of that beef just run down the, the griddle as well so yeah it's not, it's not, but that's don't, why don't they charge there. 80 bucks for a Kobe beef burger. Exactly. Exactly. So, you know, with very interested to hear what he has to say on sort of the right cut of beef and, and there's a few, there's a few people, but actually they just reinforce what you've said. And I think, um, the patty itself is, is, and the blend of meat is the most important thing. But I think, um, we're at one of my favorite jo- burger joints here, actually one of my favorite burger joints in the world, uh, is dip and flip here in, in London. And they have a three or four recipe and we'll talk a little bit more about them in a second but they use a blend of beef forib chuck and and some fat some beef fat uh as as their blend and that is is perfect kenji from serious eats gets a little bit more into it but again it's it's the short rib and the chuck are the ones that keep coming back over and over is that the the blends of the flavor and the fat and the tenderness that you were that you were talking about and I wanted to harken back to one thing real quick about frozen versus uh, fresh. Um, you know, there are a lot of uh, marketing campaigns out here in the U.S. for for chains that do not freeze their freeze their meat. Uh, most famously, In and Out, uh, who who you know don't actually serve, have any restaurants that are not within a day's drive of their processing plants for their any of their any of their products. But what I will say is that frozen patties although not as good, are not the devil. Um, However, poorly frozen and poorly thawed, which a lot of uh, restaurants or home cooks or especially fast food joints uh, are are guilty of, you're going to create a bad situation. Let me dive into the science real quick. What happens is it's all about ice crystal growth. When you chill food and if you don't chill it at the right temperature if you go from like warm to to not the coldest freeze in the world because we don't have you know thermal you know we don't have industrial size freezing uh capabilities in most of our homes um you're creating the opportunity for very slow ice crystals to form and that punctures the the meat cells causing a lot of liquid to you know leak out of the cell uh, out of the cells and what happened well, the water can leak out of the cells so what happens is if you've ever been defrosting you know ground meat or something like that and then you pull it off the plate after it's defrosted and you see a bunch of what looks like blood underneath that's just pl- that's plasma that that's water laden cells that have basically been destroyed from the freezing uh, process and caused you to get a dry piece of crappy uh, meat and therefore when you cook it you're like oh frozen meat tastes terrible it's probably because it wasn't frozen correctly that seems fair i think um a lot of them are quick dry quick frozen anyway which which would cause that but the thing that i think about so we've established that the beef patty generally should be some sort of combination of of chuck or if it's not just purely chucked, then it should you know look for things like short rib, brisket, sirloin, the things things that the restaurants that talk about those things, or if you're if you're blending your own combinations of those, you're going to be in good shape. But I think we should get on to the cooking of them now and and how they should be cooked as opposed to perhaps how one should cook them. When the thing that I think is important is 
that they should never be well done. Ever, 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 ever. I want, I like my burger with a lovely thick seam of pink in the middle, which is technically illegal in London, but everybody does it anyway, because it would be, well, actually, as Bourdain says, if an establishment refuses to cook your burger under medium, they are basically on the side of the terrorists. And I, and I agree with him there because you want to have that just like you have in a, in a steak. Now you do get a little bit risky here because once you grind beef up, then you, uh, you start a bunch of enzymatic and bacterial processes into play. You're mixing things from the outside of the beef where uh, the, the some of the nastier things can be destroyed with very, very hot heat into meat that not necessarily is going to be cooked to a temperature that will destroy the bacteria that can make you uh, pee blood out of your ass. So... <laughs> Uh, I, you know, th- it is a little bit risky. And again, I think that that talks back to the places where you need to go, where you can be guaranteed quality. And that's where I worry if I'm getting a burger that's been frozen and I ask for it to be medium or medium rare in the middle, then that's just asking for a night on the thunder bucket. Yeah, I would never order food to a uh, meat to order or meat to temperature order in a place that does um, that does frozen ground beef. I mean, whole ground, whole meat, that's fine because basically all you do is make sure that the bacteria on the outside is properly salted and then, and then uh, seared to an inch of its life on the outside because it can't penetrate into the rest of the meat but when you're grinding it to your point you are creating this opportunity for a very inhospitable environment and but also from a technical point of view if you go super super like i want my burger rare you're not allowing the meat to to get any sort of sort of crust on it to create um you know more of a of a whole constructed patty and it's just going to fall apart and the flip side is yeah i agree you go to the other side of that you're going to be in a situation where it's going to crumble apart as well no, no, absolutely. And I think um I think also you just lose some of that beautiful tenderness and and umaminess as well if you if you and mediness, frankly, just pure mediness if you if you cook it more than medium well. But yeah, I mean you if you if you undercook it, it's just gross. I mean, if you like steak tartare, that's fine. That that's a, a delicacy unto itself. But we're talking about burgers here and you need and I think, you know, there's a lot of beautiful science about the smash burger as well which creates this huge surface layer for a really you know lots of maillard reaction that gives you that beautiful salty crunchy crust so i okay we've covered the patty i feel i feel good about that just just to go back to nathan mirvold he says that again you should be using short rib patty but you must grind it vertically (laughs) so that you are aligning the grains so it's not just scientific anymore it's spiritual well, none. So, <laughs> also, the more the more tough the area you're pulling from uh, the meat from, the the longer the, the the fibers, the grains can be. And and whenever you're cutting a steak or a piece of meat, always cut across the grain because you're shortening the the length, and that means it's going to be uh, less chewy. And I'm guessing the that has something to play into the, what he's asking as well. Yes, it's worth mentioning that Saveur did a, ver- a slightly more practical version of this burger, and I have made it, and it was absolutely delicious. So don't let the science put you off because. This does, in the real world, yield an incredible burger. But now I think we're getting into the the accessories, if you will, for a burger. And I think this is where departures the, the happen. fist fights yeah. start. So let's talk cheese because that's that's probably the most you know popular and and common addition. There, I like cheese. I love a cheeseburger. I think actually I prefer a cheeseburger to a just a, a plain burger. But you need a cheese. You like cheese on your burger? Yeah, absolutely. But again, yeah. I think I'm I, I'm ahead of you on this, and I think that the kind of cheese can make or break a burger. Yeah, I I agree. I think um I think everybody agrees. You need a cheese that's going to melt consistently and not greasily, and cheddar is not one of those. Cheddar is especially the more mature you get, the the grosser it turns into like a thick piece of plastic. It's because the weird- um, there's no uh, the older a cheese gets, and generally in these kind of more dry cheeses, the enzymes. Because uh, I'm lactose intolerant, and like so, any sort of like the more um, younger cheeses, uh, well, cow cheese, because there's less there's less lactose in all other cheeses. You know, it has more lactose in it, and that's what's what makes a good cheese in my mind. Uh, the older, the drier the cheese is, that that lactose has been converted into into a different kind of sugar, and that allows 
for what you're talking about, like this opportunity for it to turn into a, just a, a, a chunk of leather in the middle of your burger. Yeah, absolutely. So I think um, you don't want to go with a traditional cheddar. And I think, you know, traditional British cheddar is one of the one of this country's greatest contributions to human society. And I think it's the thing I would miss the most if we ever left this country, but it has no place on a burger. And weirdly, the the more processed and less dairy like to your point the better and you want you know a, a good slice of american cheese and that's a thing that is a thing let's not get started on that uh it's going to work really really well and you want it to melt consistently you want it to melt well dip and flip again where i go in london which creates a book burger they get the slices of processed american cheese and it's just it's really really good yeah, I and and I'm I'm amazed that you can find you know craft American singles in in England and that there's a restaurant that's using them and um, you need a cheese that can melt so try always trying to find ones that can do that but the flip side of that like you know you have cheeses that are already halfway melted by the time that you pull them out and I am not a big fan of like a Stilton on my burger for a flavor point of view it's going to overwhelm everything but also that's too gooey that's too runny yeah and- I think this just over faffing it is as well yeah You're, it's just it's just a it's, no i mean it's, it has its place from time to time You're like, oh that sounds really good but if you're talking a cheeseburger then it's it's got to be the right cheese and it's got to melt well it's got to melt consistently if we go to nathan nathan says a a cheese single homemade made from a combination of emmental comte so our brother andrew will be delighted comte if you never had it smells like a dead person's socks in a good it's way it's delicious it's delicious, but it does smell like somebody's been dead in them for a very, very long time. And wheat ale. Yeah, I understand that. You're you're just basically making you're using that to reconstitute it all into your own Franken cheese. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then making a. I mean, again, this is like you have five days to make a burger. Do I have the burger recipe for you? But it's. I don't think that that's as broad as people think it is. It's just. It's a just a slice of processed cheese that's going to melt consistently. Yeah, bacon. You like bacon on your burger? Yes, and and I do love bacon on my burger. However, I don't like so there's so many different varieties of what bacon means around the world. And for the English listeners, the only bacon that makes sense on a burger is streaky bacon, otherwise known as just normal American bacon. Um, like it's the bacon, it's the way that it comes from the animal is that it's the stomach, it's the belly, um, as opposed to English, which has uh, the piece of the loin still part of it, um, which is the big thick part, and then you know Canadian bacon is just bastardized ham, you know. It, it tastes fine, but not in my burger. I want something that is flavorful, that is layers of meat and fat, and then when it's cooked, it gets crispy. Yeah. So I was just about to ask you that. I think I again, if you in, in the UK, there's a there, and again, we're gonna say I'm gonna say this, and it is controversial. The British claim that they cook bacon properly. The Americans claim they cook bacon properly. You're both wrong. You both do it right. It's fine. You cook bacon differently for different situations. But I think for a burger, it's got to be streaky bacon, like you say, and it's got to be crispy. Here you do get British-style cooked bacon, which is is not back. Crispy. It's back bacon, yeah. Yeah, it's back, it's back bacon, which is great and wonderful. And in a bacon sandwich is the most transcendent thing in the world, but it has no place on a burger because I think it gets in the way of the experience because it's chewy and you would need to put a little bit more effort in. Whereas crispy, streaky bacon just kind of like, it's, it's almost having like, like having bacon bits on your burger. Which um, is something you should do as well. <laughs> yeah, because you get that salt, man. It's yeah. like, it's amazing. It's it's perfect. Um, so so what, um, we're building here, deep what we're breath. building here is that we're building the perfect bacon cheeseburger. We're, but yes. And actually that, okay, that's a really good point because that is my my litmus test for a burger joint. Uh, if it's same with my, like if I go into a pizza joint, I don't want some nonsense pizza. I want to try your pepperoni pizza because I can compare that against every other pizza joint I've ever eaten at. And this is the same with a burger. I want a bacon cheeseburger because then I can see if you've got the basics right. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to add Stilton or, you know, any arugula. And I do love both of those things, but just I want to try it. So we're missing one important component here, which is should there be anything on the patties or the buns in terms of ketchup, mustard, mayonnaise, other yeah, I, I believe that 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 sauce is not only a flavorful uh, way to you know, sorry, a way to get more flavor into the burger, but it has a key structural reason to be there. Um, if you think about what 
mayonnaise is. It's an emulsion. It's 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 combining of fat and 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 a liquid and water, which usually separate themselves. But you beat the crap out of them, and they turn into emulsions. Uh, and then emulsions are watertight. So what you mm. do, what you're doing is you're creating. If you put them on the bun, you're you're creating a watertight layer between that and the bun. So if you have a ball, uh, um, a bun that isn't going to be able to stand up to a really juicy burger, it, you know that stops some of the, the it falling apart. Ketchup can do the same thing. Most sauces are at a base level of emulsion or any sort of thick sauces. And that way, I, I 100% agree that they should be there. It's also a good anchoring point for more slippery, slippery uh, ingredients such as lettuce, tomato, you know, uh, uncooked onions, if you're going to put that into your burger. So it's a good affixative, I would say. I'm far less mil- – I'm not, I'm not saying you're militant, but I'm not militant about this. I think some people like ketchup, some people like mayonnaise, some t- people like mustard – for me, ketchup and American mustard are are great either on the bun or on the burger. I'm not too, you know, Jamie Oliver, and I like I like this idea. Jamie Oliver in his uh, comfort food book, he had this great recipe, and I think actually our brother Andrew's made this a couple of times at home. This burger, and I again, I, I Andrew, I know you're listening. You're not gastronomically retarded. <laughs> I, <laughs> Jamie Oliver, when his when his burger patties are on the bun, he brushes them with American mustard. Huh. And then you build up this crust. And I tried it once and it was top drawer. I really, really liked it. But again, you know, some people don't like mustard. Some people don't like mayonnaise. Some people don't like ketchup. That's fine. I think you go with with what you what you like. Uh, I think I'm, I, I disagree with you on mayonnaise. I think it just gets in the way. I'm not saying that you need mustard, but, um, but uh, sorry, mayonnaise, but mustard is an emulsion as well. I mean, my, my point is the science behind it rather than the flavor. I mean, my point is create something to do a purpose and then figure out the way to make it taste good. I hate ketchup in my burgers unless it's all mixed together and like, you know, I, I, with other things like to, like ketchup with like mustard or something like that. Straight up, just ketchup doesn't do it for me. Um, yeah. and I, See, I, 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 I like it. I think, you know, and again, old Nathan says that, yeah, and I've made this as well. He puts in a hamburger glaze of suet, pureed tomato confit, beef stock, and smoked salt. Okay. And again, the the Saveur recipe is a little less um, weapons grade than that. It, you you use bacon lardons and other thing. I'll find. I'll post it in the show notes. But it was it was really really good. But again, I think I think that's one of those things where you know you go with what you want. You go with what you like. Yeah, I mean, so like to, today, I mean, the, the day we're recording is. Basically, American Mother's Day, Europeans, uh, English people don't freak out. You didn't miss it. And so, like we mentioned, mom's here. And I am going to be, you know, cooking a steak, but I'm also making a sauce. And it will be a uh, caramelized onion and um, balsamic vinegar sauce. And that also works incredible in burgers. If you, yeah. If you if you got the right balance right and the right cheese right, that works well. And, and it doesn't matter that it's not a traditional thing. I think what we've established here is that bacon – sorry, the bun, the bread, uh, tier one, tier two, the cheese, potentially the bacon, uh, tier which is tier two. Everything beyond this is your own personal interpretation, but you have to get tier one and tier two correct before you start doing anything else. Learn the rules before you break the rules. <laughs> so, okay. I think um – we're finally moving into the really controversial bit, which is what you can and should and should not and should never add to a burger. Uh, so let's do the. I'm gonna. Do, I'm, I'll, I'll go down the list, and I think, and you tell me if you if you think it belongs in a burger. Mm-hmm. Onions. Yeah, and in you can have them in multiple different ways: raw, cooked, sautéed, caramelized. I'm pretty okay with all of that. Incorrect. no i think that's fine i think raw onions kind of get in the way because they're like oh all i can taste is raw onions caramelized onions on the other hand i think uh our friends at five guys do a top uh, job of that and i think it actually brings out that sweetness is beautiful uh lettuce i can do without it almost almost in every single burger i can do without it yeah screw screw lettuce lettuce has no place in a burger uh nathan says that it should and you should take a patty of romaine lettuce so like, a, you know, romaine is beautiful because it, it retains its structure, even if you cut a section from it. But then you should do a sous vide of it in liquid hickory smoke. Oh, no. I mean, look, I, I, I get this guy has got all the money in the world and is is working on each individual part of it. But you got to realize that a burger is all is not necessarily the sum of the perfect, perfected Well, I think what parts. he's saying is that it... 
I think what he's saying is that this burger will be greater than the sum of its part. Okay. Uh, it would also cost you about $1,200 to make, but never mind. Uh, so, yeah, no, lettuce is, is – is, no, it does not belong in a, um, in a burger. It belongs nowhere near a burger. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of money. It's wrong. It's slimy. It's cold in an otherwise hot environment. It's wrong. It's wrong. Yep, I agree. And you should be ashamed of yourself if you have lettuce. And if you're using it for a textural crunch uh, or or just to break up the the, the sameness of, of the burger, there are other options. There are better options, such as bacon. Bacon is Mother Nature's best salad. Yeah. That's very Homer Simpson-esque. I like it. <laughs> uh, okay, tomato. Again, take it, can take it or leave it. Again, hot tomato is kind of weird. Yeah, I, I think... A beautiful tomato is a wonderful thing, and if it's good, it can be incredibly flavorful. But usually the ones you get at burger joints are not, and it's just... Uh, They're usually like beefsteak, uh, beef uh, ironically, beefsteak tomatoes that are just water and no flavor. Red. They're, that's it. They're red. That's it. Yeah, and exactly. I think, I'm, I, I, think I can also do without them. Uh, mushrooms. I like mushrooms because they are... In the same flavor family as beef, they are umami. They have earthy tone flavors to them, so they do complement yeah. them well. Um, I know that ketchup was originally a, came from you know there was a mushroom variety of ketchup was one of the first you know uh, formulated ketchups throughout culinary history, and so it is a good uh, part of a sauce as well. It would have to depend on the burger. It really would have to depend on the burger. I think it'd have to marry well with the cheese as well. Well, I think those are the that's the the five. What what anything else that you'd add? That you would add, that you do add, that people add, that you think is an abomination unto the Lord. Any any sort of crumbly cheese just bothers me unbelievably. So like feta, you know, oh, or feta actually sounds pretty good. It, it, it just it's more not a flavor thing. It's more that you pick it up and half it falls out the bottom. You know, it's my, an inconvenience. It's an inconvenience. Thing. Yeah, exactly. Mine just comes down to different sauces, and I'm willing to go out and limb here and say that I freaking love sriracha on my burgers, and I know that's a terrible terrible thing to say because it's become so mainstream whatever but a little bit of may- uh, uh, a sriracha aioli is out of sight sometimes i think you've been in san francisco for too long <laughs> <laughs> i i do have a- i can see it i yeah i can see that yeah I, the everything else is fine i don't mind if you do need some level of greenery a tiny bit of arugula holds up better than lettuce, but it doesn't really do much for me. The big one that my wife would be screaming at me right now for not mentioning, and whenever we go to a place with burgers, she makes me add them to whatever we're doing, is pickles. Oh, yeah. That's a great point, Kate. I hope you listen to your husband's podcast. Really, really important and good point. And it's the right Absolutely kind of pickles. And, and um, you know- Dill. It's a dill pickle, um, or a gherkin as they're known. Wait, you're, is a gherkin the same thing as a dill? I, I don't know my differences. Yes. Between, yeah. Okay. Cool. Yes, but it's the it's the it's the it's the it's the salty the the not the sweet version. Yeah, and there's the. I'm not a fan of sweet pickles. There's a company. There's a brand that my wife loves, and I I can't remember the name of them. Kosher dill pickles are basically the the variety of them, and and you, she has to have them in her burgers. In fact, we we there's a deli, there's a Jewish deli up the street from us, and they gave us instead of bread, they gave, they gave us a small plate of like three different pickles, and she thought she died and gone to heaven. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think I think uh, pickles are wonderful. That's a very very important point. And again. Once you've established the holy holy trinity of patty and bun and cheese, I think everything after that, go go with what you like, um, except for lettuce, which is just wrong. But it, it also um, you have to take in consideration certain um, height restrictions. Just remember, don't build anything that is taller than your taller than your mouth, your, than your grip, yeah, or your mouth, yeah, absolutely. So let's let's talk about uh, where your what your favorite burger is and where you where you get it and why you like it. So I think that what you established through a lot of this, maybe the listeners are thinking the same thing. Is like, holy crap! It sounds so freaking difficult to make a burger at home. Like all these like rules and and specialist equipment that this guy's talking about. But yes, you can do it at home. Um, and and also not to mention all of the like the different like I have to get four cuts of meat and balance them right and get a grinder and all that. I probably make burgers at home once a year, if that. I'm yeah. not somebody who wants to go through the faff. There's a reason that they 
are everywhere and people do it better. So I'll give you two two places that I love. Uh, one that's more accessible for everybody and one that's more local to me. The one that I that's accessible to almost everybody that you know comes to the West Coast is In-N-Out Burger. And uh, if you haven't had it, it is a West Coast institution. It is, um, you know, they only have three things on their menu. However, there is the secret menu that everybody knows about that, you know, the double, double animal style and all that, which is fun and, and, you know, great. However, they only have such a small menu item so that they can keep quality fantastic. They pay their employees a living, a great living wage. Um, they, as we mentioned earlier, they don't have any locations that are, that are more than the day's drive from their distribution centers so that they can keep the quality high. And this, the burgers just are simple unless you start, you know, doubling up and stuff like that. And they're tasty. Um, they have soft buns. They are, you know, well put together. They are griddled, not flame broiled. And that's, you know, own personal taste, which is up to you. They used uh, caramelized onions in their sauces. It's everything we've been talking about and they use good cheese. They don't make it too faffy. The one that is local to me, that is sort of my go-to place whenever I want a burger, is, again, a French place, weirdly enough, called Rendezvous Burger in Albany, California, California, and it is the most bare-bones burger in the world. It is a cook-to-order order patty, a slice of prosciutto, not bacon, which is good because it gets nice and crispy as well, gruyere, uh-huh. and caramelized onions, and that is it. That's interesting. That's, I think that that's... And it's a potato bun as well. That's um so I my one of my favorite burger joints is also In and Out. I adore In and Out. I love In and Out. Whenever I come to California, I will hurriedly greet friends and family, push aside small children, and go and get In and Out Burger. And the reason I love In and Out Burger is the same reasons that you've mentioned. I like mine animal style, which is with the um the the burger. It's basically just Thousand Island dressing in the burger. The In and Out Burger at Los Angeles Airport at LAX is when I die. And the good Lord has judged me and says, you've been a decent human being, Alex. Here is your heaven. It will be the In-N-Out at LA airport because A, it's In-N-Out. And B, every 35 seconds, a plane screams over your head at 235 feet. It's amazing. If you want to, if you're going to LA and you have a layover or you get there early, you can take a taxi. It's five minutes from the terminal. Sit there, enjoy your airplane porn. And one of the best burgers of your life. What? Uh, get a double double animal style with animal style fries and a diet coke, and thank me later. What, what's funny is that your heaven is also a vegan eco warrior's hell. Yeah, uh, you know I love my planet and I love my animals, but they're also both delicious. So the other is Dip and Flip, which I've mentioned, which used to be 250 feet from my house in London, and I was there when it opened, and it's now my my favorite burger joint. I mean, it's it's. In and out and and dip and flip for my favorite burger in the world. Dip and flip do just really good, easy, simple bacon cheeseburger. They use uh, that that combo of beef I was talking about earlier. They've imported the, a sta- a stainless steel griddle, so they're the smash style burgers or the beautiful and crispy. They're also famous for the reason why they're called dip is they'll take then slices of roast beef which are dipped in gravy and then put that on the burger if you want it uh, so uh yeah uh, uh french dip style or french dip on a bacon cheeseburger i don't do that um I, I i don't a lot of people do but i just think that their bacon cheeseburgers are awesome my friends over at burger bear disclaimer i am an investor in burger bear uh do good work in london as well on uh, the old street roundabout and the reason why i like them is they do the fat steamed burgers so they'll do a beautiful, like griddle-styled, like massive double hockey puck patty. Put the cheese on it. Put a stainless steel bowl over the ba- the patty while it's on the griddle, so that the, the the cheese melts really good. And they've made their own burger bear jam, which is basically this bacon jam with a like a tomato sauce and and baked cooked bacon lardons, and that really brings the whole thing together. I think they do. I mean, and uh, and Tom, the guy that runs it, is just super passionate about his burgers. The other one, if I'm allowed three, Greg, who shoots attaché with me, uh, and I found this in Paris, and I'm sure that any French person listening to this will be like, that's just disgusting, is Big Fernand. And we found, we stumbled across a Big Fernand. We'd had like one or two beers. In Paris, and they did just a really solid, messy ass burger. 
uh, that was absolutely flipping delicious. It had, um, and it was a little off piste. It had like, um, Gruyere cheese in it, uh, and a few other bits and pieces. Uh, and they have like a camembert burger. They have one with raclette cheese, if you're a fan of that. And it was, um, yeah, it was really, really good. The I, I never heard of it, and I would love to try it. The only thing, and I have to qualify uh, any of Greg's opinions on burgers, because he eats them with a knife and fork. I've beaten him uh, out of that. Okay, habit. good, good. Uh, the most embarrassing stories of, of eating with Greg or, or when he eats a burger or pizza with a knife and fork, and it's not deep dish. When we do an it, when we do an Italy episode, all well, that will be an interesting social experiment. But no, he uh, he ate his burger like a big boy. Good. Finally, one of my all-time favorite burgers in the entire world is a Big Mac. There is absolutely nothing wrong with two all-beef patties. Etc. 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 I love me a Big Mac. It's one of the most satisfying things in the world. I have an unusual quirk. If you know me well, some might say it's a little bit weird. I eat my Big Mac layer by layer. <laughs> so I take the bun and I eat it, and then I take the first patty and then I eat it, and then I take the second bun and I eat it, and then I eat the second patty. And all the way down. Uh, I get some odd looks, but I've done it since I first had my very first Big Mac. The hilarious thing is that my friends in America think I'm the weirdest person in the world because I do the same thing. And I don't... So it's genetic. It is genetic. No, my story, and maybe I'm misremembering, maybe I was just emulating my older brother, was I was convinced that Andrew, our middle brother bullied me mercilessly at certain times in my life, and he said that he spat in one of the layers. <laughs> so you, through pure suspicion, yes. needed to deconstruct your Big Mac. I did not have that suspicion. I just I just maybe a little bit weird. If you're listening to this, and you deconstruct your Big Mac or any other food item, please get in touch. Put Will and I at ease. Uh, but on that note, we are running out of time. Any final thoughts on burgers? Go find a good burger, understand what makes one good, and therefore you can make good decisions based when you try something else new or some new gourmet place that's popped up in your hood. Yes, and the good thing about being in London, if you are in London and you are listening, is there are so many great burger joints in London. Byron is is prevalent, and it's actually not that bad, but if you, if you take a look, there are so many great burger joints out there. Uh, burgers are wonderful. Please don't eat them every day if you like being alive, but if you are going to eat them, go find a great one, like Will says. Please let us know on Twitter at MasticationNTN what your favorite burger joint is, what you love in a burger, what you don't think belongs in a burger, any burger tips that you have so that we can share them with the world in our next episode, which will be C. So if you have any episodes for the letter C or curly C, as we say in my house, please let us know. Until next time, thank you for listening. Subscribe, download, review, and we'll see you next time. 